Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship, especially if you're new or maybe you're visiting. We do want to extend a special welcome to you, and any questions, comments, concerns, uh, clarifications, even please come and talk to myself or to any one of the other elders after service is over. I think we're going to be up in the front passing out budgets to members, but please uh, come and talk to us. Uh, really, that's time for any of us, new or not, to come and connect. Uh, Pastor Dave and I actually got to experience what it feels like to be a, a newcomer at church this past Sunday. As Dave said, Pillar Baptist Church flew us out for the Puritan Conference in Los Angeles, and then they drove us both to the Bay Area where Pastor Dave got to preach at Pillar Baptist, and I got to preach at uh, Redeemer Bible in Mountain View. Um, but it was very encouraging to worship at the conference with some 2,500 uh, other people and also at these sister churches. Uh, Pillar Baptist says hello, and they treated us very well. Uh, they gave us a variety of very luxury foods. Again, four and a half pounds in six days. Brazilian barbecue, Korean barbecue. I don't know if you're hearing a pattern, uh, but I do think that the greatest encouragement for me, and, and I think I speak on behalf of Dave as well, was really just to worship in their churches and to meet their people and to sing with them and to talk about how to minister and love and serve God's church. Uh, it was a wonderful time. Uh, but as encouraging as all of that had been, Dave and I, we were really just missing our church. Uh, we miss you guys. We miss this church family, this gathering. And I'm sure we don't say this enough, but we really do love you all. And there's nowhere else that we would rather be, whether you like that or not. Uh, you're likely going to have to fire us to get rid of us. Uh, but please don't do that. Now, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 11 and verse 27 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke 11 verses 27 through 36 is our passage. And that passage can be found on page 870 if you are using a church Bible. Page 870. Luke 11 and verse 27. And before we look at this text together, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we ask that you would bring uh, glory to your name uh, in the proclamation of your word and in our reception of it. Would you change our lives for the better? Uh, by the Holy Spirit, would you magnify Jesus Christ, your son, in our heart uh, and continue to build your church? Uh, we know that only you can do these things, so help us, God, where we struggle. Uh, give us hope when we lose perspective, and please convince us more and more of just how much it is that you love us. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. Up to this point in the narrative, there have been a variety of different responses to Jesus. Some have left all to follow him. Others have been scheming uh, on how to get rid of him. Some have been healed, many have been fed, and most everyone who has come into contact with Jesus has heard him preach about the kingdom of God. And in the text immediately previous to ours, there have been three uh, responses to yet another miracle of Jesus when he casts out a mute demon. There were some who marveled. There were others who attributed Jesus' power to Satan. And there were others who remained inconclusive and wanted an even greater and more undeniable sign directly from heaven. But there had been no denying that Jesus has this authority over the demonic realm and can speak into it. There's no denying because there are lepers who are now clean, blind men who now see, paralytics who now walk, and his preaching is unlike anything the people have ever heard before. And within this crowd of people who are following Jesus, there is a mixture of those who really do follow him. 
and those who merely watch in awe, and those who reject, and those who think that they are in some kind of safe middle ground, a wait-and-see kind of approach, which really are the categories of the people we have today and whom Jesus continues to address in our text this morning, where his main topic of discussion is not what we do with miracles as evidence, but what we each do with his word. The emphasis of this passage is about how we each and we all need to receive the truth of his word and act upon it. We read in verse 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. There is a, a great privilege and a high blessing of both hearing the word of God and then obeying it. And this blessing and privilege uh, is really reserved for those who do, do both, not only the one. It's not enough to hear because many are going to hear and do almost nothing more than that. But the truly privileged are those who do hear and then they keep God's word. Now this woman here, she just can't help but to cry out when witnessing and hearing the things that Jesus is doing and the message that he is proclaiming. She can't help but to cry out because there's this admiration here, this awe that bubbles forth with this enthusiasm that through her own lens of her own life and thinking about her own existence as a first century woman, that the highest honor that she could associate with herself in this moment is what it would feel like if this Jesus had been her very own son. And we see this uh, really all day, every day. My child is an honor student at blah, blah, blah. On the football field, there's a beaming mom who wants to take a picture with her child who just had an impressive game. We see the smiles that come from a heart that is filled with pride at graduations, not pride in the evil sense, but pride in the sense of being associated with an accomplishment that somehow my child really has made it this far. And there's a certain look that a mom has upon her children when they act kindly and make the right decisions, when they hit this milestone, driver's license, getting married, first job, and whatnot. And here it is that this woman cries out because she sees Jesus as through the eyes of a mother of the blessed position of the one who carried you in her body and gave birth to you and nursed you and raised you and got to experience your growing up and witness the kind of man that you have become. Again, it's especially in this first century that the very greatness of a woman had often been measured and wrapped up in how her children would turn out and so this woman's cries can be subtitled in her admiration of Jesus, oh, to have a son like this one. His mother must be very, very blessed. And she's not wrong. Mary, Jesus' mother, is very blessed. Back in Luke chapter 1 and verse 46, after Mary had been processing more and more that she is actually pregnant with the prophesied Messiah and the Christ in her body, even though she is a virgin, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. There is a high honor reserved for just the one who had the great privilege of carrying our Savior and nursing him and raising him and caring for him in a way that no other woman could ever claim as her own. And it is here 
within this mixed group of people with mixed responses to Jesus that there is just the one lone voice who cries out with this kind of phrase to recognize Jesus by recognizing Jesus' mother's privilege and high blessing in her relationship to him. But there is an even greater privilege than this, brothers and sisters, and a higher honor than even being the one who bore and raised Jesus. And that is in simply hearing the word of God and in keeping it. You know, we often think that the greatest honor would be to be one of the 12 disciples and sit next to him and to see him with our own eyes and not just the eyes of faith and to hear the tone of his actual voice and to share a meal with him, even eating out of the same bowl, and look into his eyes of love for the people and witness his tender care and his affection for those who seem to need it the most, and to see firsthand the beautiful devotion he has to the Father, and that purity of life that is otherworldly. I mean, we can read through the Bible and wish that somehow we could experience these things that only a singular generation of people have experienced. And while this is true to a degree, Jesus here points actually again to a much higher privilege and a far greater honor because the highest category of people in terms of blessedness, the highest category is not made up of those who got to see and witness these things. Some people like that perish anyways. But the highest category again are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And I think we have to let this truth sink into us a little bit more than we often let it. I'm sure that many of us would pay mucho bucks to sit front row to witness just one of these miracles. I mean, people spend thousands of dollars today to travel to Israel just to be upon the same supposed hill where Jesus had been crucified and to walk the streets of Galilee where Jesus spent so much of his ministry. There are people literally fighting each other for these historic sites as if somehow achieving one of them for their own camp is going to be the mark of some kind of honor. But that's not it. The highest honor, brothers and sisters, and the greatest privilege is to hear the word of God because not everyone gets to hear it, and not only to hear it, but to keep it as well. What this means is that when you hear God speak in his word, things like, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, Matthew 6, 19. And then you hear that, and then you start to think how you have to start searching and scrolling for more and more stuff, and instead begin to think about how to best spend the limited hours God gave us in this life for his kingdom instead of ours. It means that you're more blessed when you do that and really believe in that word than even witnessing a miracle in the flesh to see through the veil of what is temporal. When God's word says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, when it preaches to us, no other gods before me, and you hear that, and then you start to keep it by thinking about if you do give more of yourself to your hobbies, or more of your heart to your career and ambitions, or more of your life to even value your family more than he, and you hear that, and you want to keep it, and then you intentionally begin to reorganize your life to be more centered upon Jesus, hobby, career, family, all centered around him, then you really are the blessed one even more so than if you even grew up with Jesus and saw him almost every day. This means that when you hear husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, Ephesians 5. It means that when you think of your marriage brothers as an avenue to be sacrificial and giving rather than fighting for and getting what is mine, 
It means, sisters, that when you embody the spirit of gentleness without backbiting or snarky stares in a world that preaches to you to submit to nobody, and especially not to any man, when we begin to trust God's word more than the opinions of others and believe that marriage is somehow more an arena to magnify Christ than even getting our own needs met, when you hear those words and keep them, you're more blessed than the people who ate the miracle bread and fish in the feeding of the 5,000. When Proverbs 22, 6 teaches us, train a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it, and therefore you make it your priority to disciple and raise your children, not primarily to be rich, educated, score the most points, and therefore get the most self-glory and raise little narcissists. No, you hear the word, and you raise your children and protect them and guide them and point them to God as the fountain of all things. When you hear about giving, and then you give. When you hear about serving, and you serve sacrificially. When you read in the word about evangelism with integrity and urgency, and then you begin to do that and even love others as you love yourself. There is more blessing there in obedience to his word than even walking shoulder to shoulder with Jesus during his time upon this earth. Uh, do we really believe this? Because that's what Jesus is saying right here, that when we hear God's word and then we keep it, that we are somehow in a better position than even the one who got to raise Jesus himself. Do we believe that? Jesus says this right here. Yeah, Mary is blessed. Yes, she did carry me to full term and nursed me and raised me. Yes, she carried the Savior of the world and the Lord of all in her own hands and swaddled him, deity and humanity, wrapped up in a child, which was Joseph's sermon last Sunday. And yes, as any mother has her joy wrapped up in how her children turn out, as much of a privilege as that can be, there is an even greater one in the simple pattern of living which hears the word and then keeps the word of God. I think we ought to view Mary here in a different way as well, not like the Catholics who venerate her in an unbiblical fashion, but really it's even Mary herself who is truly blessed because when she hears a very difficult word of God, that she, as a virgin and engaged to this man she loves, is going to be pregnant, and everyone's going to assume the worst of her because of it. No one's going to believe her story. She hears that word, and in Luke 1, 38, she responds to that word. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I mean, this is where her true and great privilege lies. She hears that, and she keeps it. Philip Ryken, writing about Mary, he says, in the end, her most important relationship to Jesus was not as a mother to her son, but as a sinner to her Savior and a disciple to her Lord. And I think it is that this text is bringing us back to the place to recognize the high, high honor of simple discipleship and the great, great privilege of hearing what God has for us and with all of our effort, putting each word of his into practice. You know, the world is never going to call you blessed for this pattern of living. Instead, it's, it's going to call those who are lukewarm and those who have abandoned or compromised their faith, that those ones are really blessed. The worldly Christians, the carnal ones who have struck a healthy balance between religion and real life, that's who the world calls blessed. Those who don't take this all that seriously, they boo those who do take it seriously. But church family, let the 
world's chorus of boos be drowned out by our Savior's words right here, that the most blessed people in the world are those who hear the word and keep the word, which is a privilege even more so than the mother of Jesus who got to carry him and nurse him and raise him. But not everyone was going to do this. And Jesus now turns his attention to the crowds who really and only merely hear and see. He issues to them a warning. We continue in verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. There are really only two ways that we each can respond to the word of God. We can hear it and keep it, which results in the highest blessing. Or we can hear it and not keep it, which results in a greater condemnation. There really is no safe middle ground. Every time the gospel and the word of God is proclaimed, we each make a decision on it. And we really don't believe it unless we are keeping it more and more. And there is therefore a responsibility upon every single hearer to respond in the right and appropriate way to Jesus. And Jesus brings up two historical events to state his case. The first is the ministry of Jonah the prophet. Jonah had been sent on a mission trip to Nineveh by Yahweh. And he disobeyed and he ran the other way because he hated the Ninevites. He gets in a boat and flees in the exact opposite direction. And God casts a storm upon those waters. And then a great fish swallows Jonah up. I mean, Jonah hates the Ninevites so much that he would actually rather die than bring the word of God to them. But that fish, by the Lord, spits him up on shore. And this very reluctant prophet goes to Nineveh and preaches a one-sentence sermon which reads, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's the gist of the sermon. A pronouncement of judgment. No altar call, no offer of hope, no exposition of God's love, nothing. And you know what happened? Nineveh's king, all the way down to the animals, they all refused to eat and drink anything and brought themselves low. And they repented and cried out to God and everyone turned from their evil ways with the hope that God would be gracious to them, which he was, because God is always gracious to the repentant. Never forget that. Jonah didn't even like them. And Jonah preached a sermon that most people wouldn't want to hear. And that word of God was still kept by the Ninevites, which led them to repentance. Jesus, in contrast to Jonah, he actually loves people. He loves the people of Israel, the precise opposite of Jonah's hatred. And he has done so much to prove himself, touch lepers, heal paralytics, destroying the work of Satan in the lives of the oppressed. He's called tax collectors and prostitutes who seem the furthest from God. Even these ones can come and follow me, which means there is hope for everybody. And Jesus preaches much better sermons than Jonah's one line. 
And Jesus did this on almost every hill and every shore he found himself on. His primary message, not that Israel is going to be overthrown, but that the kingdom of God is here for Jesus is no mere prophet, but it is the son himself, the king himself. And this crowd listens and sees the mighty acts of God and has done so for a couple of years and they are still unresponsive, which is why on resurrection morning, the day of judgment, the people of Nineveh will look at these crowds that are now surrounding Jesus, the Son of God, and these guys will condemn them for we responded much more to much less. And you've been given everything and you still didn't keep the word which you heard. In the same way, the queen of Sheba, this is Kings, 1 Kings 10. She had heard of the fame of Solomon and traveled miles upon miles by foot to come before his presence, to gift him many things and to test him. She really wanted to see and verify if King Solomon's wisdom is actually legit. And the wisdom of Solomon far exceeded her expectations. The hype had been real and not overstated. She says as much in 1 Kings 10, 6, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it and behold, the half was not told me. Solomon's words and wisdom exceeded all the hype. What does she do in response? She worships God. She says, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. And she gave Solomon gold and wealth and lavished her precious things on him. This woman from the south, from a people who are not given the word of God directly, she, as an outsider, still heard about it, and she made an effort to travel to hear the wisdom and word of God for herself because she thirsted for that word. In contrast, the crowds of Jesus' day Jesus travels to them from heaven to earth. He seeks after them, not them after him. And he is not Solomon who has a finite kingdom, but he is a son of God, the eternal king with an unending kingdom, which is to come. And Solomon's wisdom, which had been mind-blowing, Jesus' wisdom is next level, for he is wisdom and the word personified that we can somehow know the very character and grace and power and love of God by looking full into his face. This is the greater than Solomon, the more than Solomon literally translated. And here it is that the queen of Sheba worships Yahweh and recognizes the work of his hands and she has done much more in response to keep that word than all of the Israelites who are in these crowds surrounding Jesus, who is much greater than Solomon, which is why she will rise up in the judgment as well and condemn those within this crowd of merely hearers of God's word because it is that they should respond in a much greater fashion. But sadly, most will either reject or they will remain on the fence of wanting more information in what they think is a safe wait-and-see approach. And this is where we feel the confrontation of God's word and the hearing of it. You know, throughout history, there have been many who have responded with much more obedience and who yet at the same time have actually received an inferior revelation. They had a lesser word, so to speak, and they still kept it. The Ninevites and the Queen of the South are Gentiles. They're outsiders far from the word, and yet they still hear, recognize, and keep that very word. There will be no excuse for those on this side of Jesus' coming 
who have been given the very word incarnate and hear the very word of Christ and have scriptures all over the place and then refuse to keep it and refuse to respond in the appropriate way. This is why Jesus calls this generation the generation of people who got to witness Jesus in the flesh. This is why he calls this particular generation an evil one with no excuse because they have been given every opportunity to both hear and keep his word and they still refuse to do so. Notice how Jesus is not afraid to be seeker unsensitive here, meaning that he is very upfront and he's not candy coating any of these truths. And that is because he is more concerned about their souls than he is about their feelings. There is no time for candy coating. There is an urgency because of the stakes which are at hand. But it is here at the same time, even in this calling out, that Jesus gives to them another gracious opportunity and a loving warning in this confrontation of them for the people to respond. He's ringing an alarm bell for their own good, and yet these people still, sadly, will not respond to it. Now, we may think that if we were in this crowd and our friends and our unbelieving neighbors, uh, if we were all here, uh, they would respond. And if they could only see what this generation had seen and heard what they had heard, uh, they might believe. That's not really the case. Jesus says in verse 29, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. While Jesus' main point is on hearing the word analogous to that preached by Jonah and the wisdom preached by Solomon, while Jesus' main point about, is about what each of us do with his word, hear it and keep it, uh, Jesus also here promises a future sign. A sign will be given. Future tense, the sign of Jonah. Matthew 12, 40 gives us this more explicitly. And like Jonah had been in the belly of the great fish for three days and came forth from it preaching, the Son of God is going to be in the belly of the earth, having already died upon the cross for our sins out of love for his bride. And yet on that third day, he comes forth from the grave. He defeats the power of both sin and of death, and he comes forth preaching yet again his very word. And his people, by extension, would preach his gospel to this nation that would, for the most part, reject it still in the book of Acts. And this same gospel and this same word has been proclaimed by his church for generations now. We're preaching that same gospel today that was preached in the first century. And people will rise or fall on their reception to it. But that empty tomb, that third day resurrection, is the future sign, which is a sign of all signs. And friends who are here today, we have been all given the sign. And no one can ever say we were not given enough to believe. You've been given every opportunity to put your faith and trust in Jesus. I mean, there are even unbelieving Jewish historians like Josephus, not Christian. And they write about the resurrection and the empty tomb as a matter of historical fact. Rome could have squelched all of Christianity at its very birth if it could just produce Jesus' dead body, but Rome could not do that. Unbelieving Israel, who hated the early church and hated Christians, they could have just squelched everything if they produced Jesus' body, but they could not do that either. For those of you here who are not Christians, the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus dying for the sins of those who believe in him, and his offering accepted and verified in his resurrection on that third day, there is no historical proof that these events did not occur. The historical death and resurrection of the real and actual person, Jesus, and the scriptures compiled 
and to churches who preach the gospel and believers as well who act as salt and as light and as proclaimers of the same message since that first century all make it an even more wicked thing to reject in this day and age where we have the fullest revelation of Jesus Christ in the pages of his very word and exhibited in the lives of his people who keep it. I beg you to respond to his word rightly, to not only hear it, but to observe it, rather than to hear it and do nothing else with it, or hear it and refuse to come to a verdict. Please look to Jesus Christ and believe. Come and talk to one of us if you need help in understanding more about him. Ask any questions you have. There's no such thing as a bad one. But for those of us who are Christians here, there is a sense of 1 Peter 4.17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. You know, we again, week in and week out, we can get so used to hearing and hearing. And because of that familiarity, think that somehow we are actually keeping it because we know some facts. That with our lips we can honor him, and yet our hearts can yet still be so far from him. You know, Israel is very well versed in the scripture. Their little kids' memorization puts our awana to shame. They had every opportunity, synagogue weekly, Old Testament studies, witnessed the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection, and yet all of that opportunity had been spurned. And I think it is so often the case that those who are so familiar with the church and have verses and songs memorized, they can spurn all of it. We see children grow up here. Some even get baptized. And they know how to say all the right things. And yet when the time comes to go out to college or become more independent or into that workforce and make some more cash, which gives them some more freedom, we see so often this massive falling away because, again, it is one thing to hear the word and it is entirely another to keep it. It is one thing to be familiar with it and another thing to actually obey it and put it into practice. And the highest blessing of all is to do both. Everyone in this crowd gets to hear, and yet Jesus calls the most of them an evil generation. You know, church family, we have to be intentional uh, in creating a pattern of doing both hearing and keeping. That when the final prayer is done this morning, that we would each take some time and be intentional with how we are going to apply today's word to our real life. We have to make that habit every Sunday and do the same thing every time you pick up this book and read it. This is why in our small groups we discuss uh, the message on Sunday because we need to apply that word into our own lives. We don't want to be satisfied merely in hearing it. You know, there, there's likely something you know today, brothers and sisters, that you already know you need to do in obedience to him, that you're putting off. There's likely something you know that you need to stop doing in obedience to him that you're not keeping. And if we get comfortable in hearing and not putting it into practice, this pattern can begin to set and then it hardens. Trust me, I've listened to thousands of sermons and I even prepare sermons of my own and I can be so easily wowed by the text and then stop woefully short of actually applying that text to real life. The more we do that, it can harden the heart and make us satisfied with merely hearing and not keeping, the strange phenomenon is utterly common, which is why James writes later, be doers of the word and not merely hearers of it, because that strangely becomes a pattern for so many to merely hear. 
But so it is when we do hear and do make that effort to keep it, a different pattern begins to set in. When you hear it and you can't rest until you try to apply it into your life, it softens the heart more and more. And that becomes a pattern every time you do hear. And Jesus declares of these ones who live like this, that they occupy a higher blessing and a greater privilege than even Mary herself. And so there really are only two ways to respond, to hear and to keep, or to hear and not to keep. And for those who hear and keep, it's the highest privilege and greatest blessing. And for those who hear and refuse to keep, there is actually a greater condemnation where even the queen of the south and the Ninevites will point the finger at you and condemn your hardened heart. This hardened unbelief comes to the forefront even more, which Jesus explains in the next verses. Look at verse 33 with me. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light." The real issue behind unbelief, and we touched on this last time when we talked about the heart preceding the mind, the real issue behind unbelief is not the evidence, but in the eye of those who take that evidence in. The purpose of a lamp is to light up a room. That's why you put a lamp in high places or recessed lighting in the ceiling so it can shine into that room's nooks and crannies. Jesus is the very light and lamp of this world. And he's been doing things for a couple of years. It is high, it is out in the open, and he proclaimed his word to everyone around him. He's not hiding under the basket. He's not hiding out in a cellar. God has put him, obviously, on a stand. The evidence, the light, the data, it is all very, very public. But there is an eye, which is a lamp of the body. And this eye is the gatekeeper, the bouncer, so to speak. It receives light or it rejects light. It bounces that light. If it is healthy, it's going to take that light and that evidence in and interpret it, and the whole body is full of the light of Jesus Christ. If the eye is unhealthy, it blocks it. No matter how much evidence and light there is all around, it's not going to let a drop of it in. And then that body remains full of darkness. The light of Jesus is not the problem. His word is not insufficient is people's receptivity to it. Now, we touched on a philosophy of ministry the last time we were in Luke, and I want to touch on it just a little bit again here today. The early church in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. That's it. Do you see how simple that ministry had been? The word, the very same word that Christ gave to his first ambassadors, the apostles, Fellowship and breaking of bread, which means we constantly gather with each other. Why do we hammer church membership so much? A commitment to each other. And prayer, because the work of ministry is utterly supernatural. God has to do it. The word, the church, prayer. Acts 6.4, what does the leadership focus on most? But we will devote ourselves to the prayer and the ministry of the word. The order is switched there, as if somehow prayer is the only way the word will really be made effective. How does the human eye change? How does the light of Christ really enter into the human heart? Not by having a bunch of gimmicky programs. 
not by doing huge events. It's only by the power of God, brothers and sisters, which is why we want to be a church that is committed to him and committed to his methods. We believe in his word. We believe in his spirit. We believe in his church. And after uh, service, we're going to witness some baptisms. And what we're celebrating really is that these eyes have been opened and that these hearts have received the light of Jesus. Their eyes have been made healthy by the Holy Spirit to experience the love of God in Jesus Christ and a new desire, a new life, a new creation and their desire now to glorify him in keeping his word. I think the proper response for all of us who are believers is just to sit there and marvel and worship. I think it's also a time of reflection, especially after a passage like this one, to ask ourselves, how are my eyes? How are your eyes, brothers and sisters? Are you seeing Jesus like he ought to be seen? Are you seeing your own life in his light? Do you understand your need of him? Uh, How are your ears? Do you only hear things ear canal deep and then knew nothing about them? Or do you want more than anything to keep the very word of Christ which you have heard? Do you desire wisdom like the queen of the south that you travel miles and miles just to hear a little bit of it? Do you respond to God's word in repentance to receive life like the Ninevites who brought themselves low and wouldn't even eat until they knew they had God's favor? Do you want Jesus Christ to be everything to you? I think these are some of the appropriate questions we ought to be asking ourselves in response. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you so much for giving us the light in Jesus Christ that he traveled far to give us his word that he humbles us by his kindness, that he is our life, our light, our everything. I pray, God, that you would make our eyes healthy, that our hearts and our lives would be full of the light of Christ. I pray for our church family that we'd be faithful to your methods, and I pray by your Holy Spirit that the watching world around us, especially here in Hawaii Kai and on our island, that you would by your grace and mercy, bring many to come to know you and see the light of Jesus Christ, that he might be their everything. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for baptisms. And I pray, God, that today would be a great celebration for our church this afternoon. We pray these things for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.